Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. The formation of Brentford Football Club in 1889, 129 years ago, is owed to the decision by the Brentford local board at the time to open a new recreation ground in the town and that that club should be formed to utilise the land for sporting purposes. A vote then took place to decide which code of football should be played by the new side, football or rugby union, with the round ball game winning by eight votes to five. Ten years later, in 1899, Brentford were found guilty by the Football Association of paying their players, an act which was really common with most leading amateur clubs in London at the time, but still illegal. And as punishment, the FA effectively forced the club to turn professional. Brentford endured a nomadic experience, playing at five different home grounds before five years later in 1904, settling in at Griffin Park. And that's where they've played for the past 114 years. Excitingly, and without stealing our guests' thunder too much, Brentford is set to move into a new home ground late next year. And speaking of our guest, James Parkinson, Commercial Director at Brentford Football Club, joins us to talk about the challenges of managing a commercial program in such a competitive market as London, as well as the excitement of the impending new stadium and how it will impact his commercial team. I'm your host, Daniel Loyston, and welcome to episode 58 of Inside Sponsorship, where we take you inside the sponsorship and commercial programs of both rights holders and brands right around the world. It's great to have you listening into the show. I've got a shout out and a little bit of housekeeping before we jump into it too much. A shout out to James Bartold, Commercial and Strategy Manager at North Melbourne Football Club, who compete in the Australian Rules Football League. And James got in touch simply to say, I've been loving the podcast. So thanks, James. I hope you are well and great to see the Kangas doing quite well this year. The housekeeping is for Roberta Vigilance. You might remember hearing from Roberta as a guest a few episodes ago where she shared her expertise around event sponsorship. Roberta contacted us to let us know that someone in Australia had purchased her book a few months back and by her own admission, Roberta wasn't 100% happy with the final product and has actually been working behind the scenes diligently on the next version, which should be awesome and will be out in August, I believe. And as such, Roberta is offering all previous buyers of her book a free copy of the new version, How to Secure Sponsors Successfully. And Roberta wanted to know if we at SponsorV happened to know who had bought the book in Australia so we could make sure that they received the new edition. Unfortunately, we weren't aware. So if it is you, one of the listeners, please get in contact with Roberta at eventandsponsors.com and let her know your details so that she can look after you. In the past few weeks, sports betting has been legalised in the USA, something which has not been the case for a very long time in much of the country. So joining us on the show to discuss his latest blog is Sponsor's Managing Director, Mark Thompson, who has looked at why sports betting and sponsorship is good for the industry. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, the World Cup is on. It is. You've got $100 to bet. Yep. Who are you putting it on? Based on performances in round one, I'm not going to rule out an outsider. Can I Australia. Put, can I put 50 on okay. Iceland? Oh. <laughs> Just as a... Crowd. Population, I think, about 3 mil, maybe. I think their right back is... Uh, 99.6% of people in Iceland watched their first game on TV. And I saw a thing um, that Ricardo Fort from Coca-Cola put out on Twitter saying, well, 
What were the other 0.04 people watching? <laughs> I think their right back works in a salt mine or something like that. So it's an imp- it's an impressive feat. So you're putting 50 on Iceland. Yeah, just because of the um, the upset the fairy factor. Tale. But also, mate, the, the results in the first pool games have been pretty um, unpredictable. But I, I'm I'm probably going to back in something so like a Brazil or somebody to to come home. Yeah. I think bit of cover on your bet you might need it if you're yeah. putting 50 on iceland to win what about 50 just to get out of the group stages might be a safer bet yeah they'll, they'll get out of their group right. i'm not so sure of uh of how our, our boys australia i think we get a, a draw against denmark we beat peru and denmark lose to france by two or more goals we're through right so there you go tick those things off you heard Mate, it here this first. is the sort of games we play at the towards the end of the year in the premier league it's yeah. too hard to do i'm just gonna sit back and yeah. watch well, i have told you that in the past haven't yeah. i don't try and figure it out there's a lot of football still to play yeah. now you've been in america for a, a, a chunk of time but in the the last world cup if you were in america or even a few months back you wouldn't have been able to put those bets on would you a, lot, a lot's changed there yeah, I mean, you still can't right now, but it's now not illegal to, to do it. With The states still then have to sort of pull together the legislation. The sports are getting their act together. I've noticed that uh, New Jersey, um, sort of the state um, of New Jersey, have actually legalised it now. They've, they've ratified it, and any of these companies could now go ahead and, and, and get cracking in New Jersey. There's going to be a, you know, 20 or so others to follow, I think, before the start of the NFL season. And you've recently spent a, a chunk of time in the US, and it's a, it's a very hot topic. A lot of people wanted to speak to you about it, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, given Australia is a bit of a, um, a hotbed for sports betting companies, that some of the world's best are situated here or were founded here, um, you know, here in the UK, and, and sponsor, of, you know, we work and our client base is predominantly across betting-based um, countries, so Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and, and throughout Europe, where sports betting is... It's progressive. Very, it's part very of the fabric of sport now, isn't it? Well, I mean, you just look at the Premier League teams. You know, we, we work with um, half the Premier League now on, on our sponsor platform, and 70% of those have a betting company on their jersey somewhere. And, and I think we've spoken about it in the podcast before. You do see some, some slightly weird situations where you might have a, a betting partner on the home side shirt, a betting partner on the away team shirt, and then the perimeter has a betting <laughs> partner in, in Skybet who sponsor everybody, well, sponsor the football league, the championships and the leagues underneath it. Yeah, I mean, and this is an opportunity for, for the US where, where the, the governing bodies themselves can put some bit more stringent, um, laws over owning categories and things like that in in this marketplace because can can declutter it with with sports betting. Um, they they've they've got the opportunity, in my opinion. We'll get to this later to to really learn from those markets that have been doing this for years and years. Now a lot of those markets have been doing it for for years and years. Like I said, it's part of the fabric. We're used to it. We've overcome some of the challenges. We embrace some of the positives, but. Not everybody in the US is a fan, but you think that sports betting and sponsorship will be good for the industry, and you have a few arguments to support that. What's the first one? Yeah, look, I mean, how I've I've sort of broken this down is I had a lot of conversations when I was over in the states. I went to Leaders, which is a you know big sports conference. Lots of people from all walks of life were there. Um, I also went to a, a a sort of sports technology startup dinner. Um, and, and there was lots of other people in there with a different viewpoint from from a different side of sport, and everybody had different questions, preconceptions. It was it, it got legalised 
whilst I was there. So the radio and TV were sort of full of hot it. Hot topic. It was very hot. And so a lot of the comments, so I've just pulled out the most common comments that I heard. And then I'm, and then I'm just sort of overlay my thoughts against them because being a sponsorship professional, 20 years in the industry, I ha- there hasn't been a day in my sponsorship life where sports betting hasn't existed. Like just at lunchtime and stuff on your breaks? Yeah, mate. Like at, you know, Saturday <laughs> afternoons. Um, per- so we're talking personal life and also in my professional life. Um, yeah, but it's it's a it's kind of one of the the key pillars in a in a, any sponsorship portfolio in in Australia and the UK. You'd be hard pressed to find many top level rights holders that don't have a connection with sports betting or just betting companies in general, right? Well, I'd, I'd challenge to say any that mm. aren't actively trying if they haven't got one. And, um, you know, for me, it's a very different sponsorship pr- proposition and, and the, the, the opportunities that it brings outside of the actual gambling tra- transaction is like immense. It actually drives more revenue away from it. So that's where my kind of positive undertones towards it come from but you know the, the first comment i heard was it's going to bring a lot of money to sport which will drive new initiatives and that sounds positive that's absolutely true but in multiple ways so you know the cash provided to the leagues and teams allow them um you know to be it allows sport sports betting to be a behemoth category um but the more money generated is often used to reinvest back into the sport so i heard comments over there that you know for the first time, sports betting might fund full-time referees in the NFL. Um, they'll, they'll fund pathway programs, welfare programs, you know, innovate some change that otherwise was, you know, not able to be done, not prioritised or whatever, but the, the funding that comes out of sports betting can actually be mandated to be reinvested into growth So and, and to, to back into community and things like that, which is what we see portions of it used for here in Australia. So... I think actually moving sports to the next level, given it is such a bohemoth category, it's like the, the funding that is generated will be huge. The, there's opportunities there straight away as part of the legislation to drive new initiatives. And even some of those positive positive initiatives like pathway programs, funding referees, you know, welfare programs, all those sorts of things. But we see a lot of uh, sports betting and, and gambling companies reinvest or working with rights holders to create content that builds both brands and engages an audience, which is a positive thing. And and without that money, that is either harder to do or you've got to take money away from those other initiatives, right? Yeah, that's right. Number two, what do you got? So what, it, what, are they, what else are the naysayers going to uh-huh. ruin the world? Well, it's going to fuel unethical behaviour. Now, I couldn't agree. You sound serious. I couldn't disagree more with this point, right? It's there's always an underworld market there's always a black market match fixing exists everywhere allegedly and that's Um, just the bits we know about and that's just what we know about right and so even in australia highly legislated highly mature sports betting market there's still underworld figures involved in sport and and things like that there's still gambling that happens legalizing it provides a level of control and oversight and and legislation and everything which actually helps remove that i think it's the opposite are we just taking uh the same arguments that america's used for legalizing marijuana in some states (laughs) i'm I'm not into that topic you might (laughs) but that's that was the argument it was like people are going to smoke marijuana anyway yeah people are going to gamble anyway Mm. there's 
unethical behavior around it that's going to happen anyway if we bring it into the light and we have some control and some ownership and some engagement and conversation around it it's a positive thing for everyone so i was watching sports day in um in america on on espn and that exact argument was put by one of the panelists that it is like marijuana those who smoke it are going to continue to do so those who don't won't those who want to dabble in it will dabble in it it, it doesn't change they're going to dabble in it anyway this is going to do it legally that correct so sports betting i think is the same the simple fact is legalized or non-legalized it doesn't change the fact that that you know underhanded behavior exists within circles where wealth and influenceable you know young people exist so you've got an 18 19 year old person with a lot of money spare time that that are impressionable that are easily influenced that you know somebody who might be cool i'm doing inverted commas with my fingers here this is an audio format right yeah comes into you know their life because of that money pretends to be their friend they're going to have a negative influence on them regardless right so creating legal channels actually provides opportunities to monitor who these people are more closely the the betting companies in australia have to provide a, a full register of everyone who has placed a bet on sports like it's a it's it's bang there you go this is everyone who transacts through us it, if the the ethics committee or you know the the integrity panel or whatever come asking for it they've got to provide it that's one of the rules so you know the sports betting companies are agents for change and control as well because it's in their best interest to operate in a controlled market that has stability because the, the behind sitting behind all these companies is a bookmaker on you know mostly the ceo or the owner of the company yep it's their money their book their bookmaking against everybody else they're just a, a, a large-scale version of that so when when they can control an ecosystem and operate in a controlled ecosystem it's better so they openly support and contribute to policy ideation and creation and the implementation such as in australia the siren to siren advertising blockouts and situational betting bans are designed to remove emotional betting people that don't have impulse um, control so it, it, it takes that, that out of the market. And that's something the betting companies supported because it, it helps them control that betting as well. So it's it's a it's actually unethical behaviour is not totally related to it. And if you put the right controls in place, it can be more controlled than it currently is. What about uh, the impact it might have on audiences? So w- one comment is... It can bring in new audiences. And it's a yes and no for me. So sources I know tell me there's already more than 22 million Americans betting on sports outside of America via VPN. It's crazy. Yeah. So they're sitting in America betting on a VPN. So those people aren't new. But what it will bring is a higher level engagement of audience. Better audiences probably, right? And it it changes the consumer behavior. And it changes the audience behavior. Because people follow more closely teams and leagues but not in the sort of the way that most people think. So the higher level of engagement that I'm talking about here isn't just people following their money. It's around people engaging in new ways to know teams outside of the team they support, leagues outside of the teams they support, the ins and the outs of, of roster movements, things like that, because they're, it, it affects fantasy. It affects their, their, their future betting. You know, They might have a, have a bet on who's going to win a league, so they need to be monitoring all that. So... You know, probably a live use case of this that I can point out is the Premier League in the UK, uh, football, soccer, have promotion and relegation in and out. So Wolverhampton this year 
Huddersfield, Newcastle, Brighton last year. They've all seen, as soon as they are seen to be confirmed as securing promotion, they see a massive boost in their social following. Now, that's not because they have a new heap of fans. Yeah, people aren't sitting around going, geez, I wish I had a football club to support. No, that's right. It's, it's actually fantasy punters starting their research at the earliest possible time for next year. And so they're looking at, okay, who am I going to put in my fantasy league team for next year? Who am I going to be able to bet on? You know, monitoring a lot of those guys that have contributed to promotion will then be traded to a bigger club. So who are they? What are they doing? Why are they good? So the engagement with these teams gets deeper and wider. And from where I sit in sponsorship, it promotes further commercial growth opportunities because you've got suddenly access to a bigger audience. I was so just going to say that. They might not be engaged with your team, but they're, you're, they're, they're, that team's following you, so there's a more passive engagement opportunity as well. But even in the in the US, if you're bringing those people who maybe aren't following teams as, as much or aren't as highly engaged and you bring them into the fold a little bit, so to speak, through the gambling, yep. you then got an opportunity to turn them into season ticket holders Absolutely. or potentially even sponsors if they're CEOs of organisations or just sell them a shirt. Well, mate, the, and just, you know, for those people, get them to one game. Mm. Just one game. You know, that that's it. So the the opportunities are there and, and the age-old the age sort of marketing issue, how do we transition a borrowed audience to an owned one? Mm, exactly. All right, yep. so it could bring new audiences but probably more along the lines of more engaged and wider audiences with specific brands not just the sport as a whole what else yeah. are people talking about um they're talking about how it will change broadcast licensing and perhaps diminish the value of broadcasting how would that work so i mean it's a true statement in the fact that it will change broadcast licensing not sure it will diminish value because it's you know it, 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 it sort of doesn't operate in that same sort of broadcast commentary sort of type level where an you know an espn or a, or a sky would operate but a key factor in the gambling business is content and content in multiple ways so betting companies need to keep their customers engaged um you know innovative deep engagement opportunities and to do that they become key players in the broadcast world so they, they become publishers themselves right well, they want access to live broadcast so they can run it through their app so somebody's you know betting through their app they can watch a game on the app so that what, what, that they've bet on so that that be, they become a player in the broadcast you know pie in terms of buying content and they do pay for content because it drives revenue yeah, it drives customers and stuff um and then the ability to create exclusive sports-based content between matches to inform of market changes so we see you know the, the release of the odds the the release of the team list for that week the ins the outs the, the roster movements things like that we already see that stuff on espn but, you know, where there's a discussion around player industry, injuries and ins and outs and, and movements around trade windows, free agency, coaching, there's, a, there's another now lucrative commercial opportunity outside the gambling space to sponsor that, that, that content as well. So, you know, you could say this has happened, this has now changed the odds, and that segment can be brought to you by whatever. It's new content. It, it actually doesn't exist And people right are now. thirsty for it. Yeah, that's mm. right. Even if they're not gambling. Yeah, are there any cautions or controls the American market needs to be aware of, do you think? Because it's not just, you know, we don't just go all in, right? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm going to sort of... Pardon the pun. Did you get that? That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I spent 20 minutes coming up with that. Didn't even get a giggle. <laughs> I was just thinking it's the first hand of the night and you're going all in. <laughs> 
That's what happened last time. We yes, I know. Next. Yeah. <laughs> but in seriousness, are there any any controls? You can't just run into this head first, go all in, go, yeah, let's get lots of betting partners because there are some cautions probably, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, basically the relationship between player associations or player unions and the leagues is a vital one and allowing this change to positively impact sports. So so laying some early and strong ground rules in is, is an essential step and and some of the examples and rules we see in Australia around sports betting, and, and they're not blanket rules, but you know the no siren to siren marketing. So, no, you know, marketing of emotion-based betting opportunities and messaging being pushed out during a match, you know, between kickoff and full time, which could result in impulse betting. You know, that's widely not allowed in yeah. Australia. You know, could your team come back from a twenty-point deficit? Get on them now at three dollars fifty. Correct. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it'd be a great bet if you're on Patriots, but not so good if you're on the Jets, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the emotion doesn't change if, depending on the fan. Correct. Um, no betting allowed by registered officials. So this is even when I... That wor- sounds like a gimme, right? Yeah, but... Sometimes I'm not convinced it's but we're not, not ju- we're not just talking about athletes or coaches. Of we're, course. We're talking about back office, front office staff as well. Who have inside information. Correct. Yep. Exactly right. So if you're a staff member, you can't bet on your team. You can bet on the league. You can bet on you know, another sport, but yep. you, you can't bet on your team. Fair if, enough. If you're a staff member. If you're a player, you can't bet on... Or, or a game that your team's playing in. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. But if you're a player, you can't bet on the league. Yep. You know, so the change is depending on what type of registration you have in as official. But, you know, this is aimed at removing match fixing or inside trading information and... An unfair playing field. Yeah, and heavy fines and bans are implemented should that occur. And that's agreed by the player. That's what I mean by the the player associations or unions and, and the leagues working together to to help this because then there's an education process that needs to follow very quickly after. Yep. And then no situation betting. So this used to occur where people would bet on a, you know, cricket the fourth ball of the next over is going to be a no ball and then I love the I got this I read a story once where these bookies got to this cricket player I can't remember what club it was uh, what country it was but they convinced this guy if you're going to um, bowl a no ball at the top of your run fiddle with your shoelace and then some other bookies heard about it and they got hold of this bloke and they said fiddle with your shoelace but don't bowl a no ball so all these people were betting on this next one's going to be a no ball and the bloke didn't bowl it. Like it was out of control. Yeah, I think that guy's uh, might, might <laughs> need to go into some sort of Yeah, protection. witness protection. Yeah. No, but, um, you know, we, we've seen in cricket where guys have bowled no balls from two metres behind the pop increase, right? That's just... I mean, in fairness, I've done that, but yeah. I'm not professional. <laughs> yeah, that's just because you couldn't time your runner. <laughs> you know, but um, situational betting, again, I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that Situational betting is is good pre-game at a at a for, for certain types of situations. Yeah. I mean, you used to be able to bet on who's going to get the first throw in. Now that's just ridiculous. That is just rife to kick the ball back to the keeper. He accidentally yeah. kicks it out. The other team yeah. gets the throw in. Yes, well, that's just ridiculous. Yes. So I I think the um some sorts of unless you're on the bet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but I, I actually think it's too hard to control, so you're, be, you're better off blanket. Mm, I agree. So, so you know, I, I think that's a, a definite no-go. You, you can't allow it because especially when you've got a, a very tiered system and, you know, a, a, a big social sort of hierarchy as well in a, in a massive country like the USA where you've, you've got your professional sports and your highly telecasted sports and things and, and, and lots of 
dodgy stuff is is easily picked up on broadcast. My my actual opinion in the application of sports betting in America, personally, not an expert by any means, is that if if it's not a broadcasted product that that's brought like that every match is broadcasted, yeah, sports betting shouldn't be allowed. So you know, Ivy League, for example, should probably not be allowed because you've got such a variety of people that want to become professionals that don't really care about it that can be approached by somebody that's where it's risky because you also don't have the resources to to monitor what's happening in the game pre and post that's what i was gonna say it can happen under the radar without you knowing and before you know it you've got a big problem Mm. so i'd be sort of tipping top tier professional sport is where it's at college sport is where it's at where every game is broadcast and highly regulated highly followed highly analyzed it's it allows for better control now you mentioned the USA is a big market. It's probably, you know, <laughs> without a doubt, one of the largest markets in the world that doesn't. Well, it would be the largest market in the world that doesn't have sports betting just yet, or you know, fully it's soon. It's the largest market in the world. So if it doesn't have sports betting, it is the largest market in the world without sports betting. Correct. <laughs> what? It's complicated though, right? Yes. How do we work through all that? It's complicated because of the size, and and because of the different legal structures in the US. Every state can choose not to allow it so therefore if you have a blanket nfl sort of policy on sports betting potentially you can't bet in pennsylvania so it's it is very complicated in terms of allowing it and things like that there are i know that there have been rules and regulations and guidelines drawn up by the nfl distributed to the sorry the nba distributed to teams around what you can and can't do in terms of when you're going out to find a sports betting partner, lots of those conversations are underway already. And that's good because people are probably keen to go and do it, but it's new territory. Yep. They wouldn't have gone over it a couple of times, so that guidance is probably wanted by the clubs, right? Yeah, and I, and I think the clubs, the leagues, the, um, the teams, they should probably be rec- recruiting, con- pulling in consultants and things like that that have actually operated in this space before in a different jurisdiction in sports. So, you know, the UK Premier League, some over there, there's lots of, there is actually lots of synergies between American sport and the Premier League in terms of ownership structures. So actually transfer and share of information internally should be easy, Mm. should be easy. Um, He rolled his eyes there, everyone. (laughs) He forgot it was audio, but... (laughs) So uh, there are lots of learnings and because it is a very different negotiation. Mm. You're not going in there pitching campaigns. You're not going in there pitching assets. You're going in there literally pitching an opportunity for this market to turn your audience into their own, to use content to do that, and and honestly to, to actually just value the deal based on how much bet, betting money goes across their desk that that's it right so brand equity and brand positioning is going to be important but only in key markets where there's high involvement so my money in is on you know whilst it's exciting for everyone involved um especially if you own shares in a betting company which mm. sadly i do not no. <laughs> uh, i've no. still got some money in my account that's about it <laughs> well that'll be gone soon um so there's a long way to go in order to get it right. And if, if executed well, you know, only good things will come. Um, but my money's on, on some sports allowing it, others not. Some territories allowing it, other no, others not. And if I was involved in a sports betting company, I'd probably do some advertising and market testing to know where the audience is going to come from before I chose which sport or teams I focused on. Because there, there, there's that side of the table. There's the rights holder side of the table. Yep. 
some rights holders would be really keen to get out in the market, bring in that new revenue. It really puts us on the front foot. The yep. danger with that is that that's first mover and that can come with an advantage, but it also comes with a, a, a potential bunch of whole challenges. Yeah. So being a follower and sitting back, whether you're a whole league or a team, might also prove advantageous in terms of watching how other people do it well and don't do it well rather than you trying to be a trailblazer. I don't know the answer. They'll yeah. have to figure that well, out themselves. Potentially there's some unpicking to do. I mean, we saw this on a smaller scale than this in the UK, the Premier League, when they allowed um, pat- logo patches on the sleeve mm. where, where some of the wording of contracts was jersey. So you, the, the the perception was that the front of shirt sponsor owned the entire jersey. So when advertising became allowed on the sleeve, they could take that as well. So they had, there was negotiation that had to take place there. Some people went really hard early to get the first patch off and, and go for it. So, you know, Rovio Entertainment were active and, and taking up a number of opportunities on sleeves of, of teams, the Angry Birds and whatnot. Yep. Um, the, other, the other side of that is team, some teams waited to actually realise what the value of that opportunity was so they could go in to a negotiation understanding how much they should be asking for rather than just prophesizing. And, of course, probably the middle ground is we all talk about trying to sign long sh- long term partnerships so that we can build a relationship we can manage it as it goes we can adjust and we can pivot but this might be one where you just go let's just do a year learn our learn it a little bit yeah and then we look at longer term deals either with that partner or another one so you do bring in some money in the short term but you're not you know sinking the ship with a five six seven year deal yeah and i think it's going to probably sit somewhere like the the sort of beverage partnerships do in the in the u.s where there's league deals and then some teams benefit off team deals as well because they've got big audiences big cities big stadiums of course uh things like that i mean the 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 real opportunity that comes i think in in this space is the fact to activate live on site in in, mm. the, in the amazing venues that are around you've got the tailgates and things in the nfl you know, they're really good opportunities for activations to really take be taken to a new level by these companies. And, of course, the companies that are operating there, they've got the money to actually do it properly as well. They're not just a new-to-market product or something like that. They're coming from areas like Australia, like the UK, that they operate high volumes, high revenues. They're big, they're big, big businesses. Of course. Thanks for joining us. And if you listeners, if you want to read through that, obviously Mark and I are speaking about his most recent blog, which you can find on sponsor.net. So if you want to read through all those points, the cautions, the complications, the excitement, the challenges, you can do so at sponsor.net. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, man, I'll just throw out there as well. If anyone, you know, wants to just chew the fat on this or, or if if you're looking to enter the enter the, the race for for sponsor embedding um, and you want to just bounce ideas off us we're more than happy to help as well we have a good oversight over this and and you know a lot of our brand side clients are from the betting space in in the australian um, operation that we run so yeah more than happy to have conversations outstanding i'm sure the listeners appreciate that thanks for joining us cheers mate james parkinson is the commercial director at brentford football club in london england who compete in the football league championship the division directly under the premier league james has some awesome experience in the industry having worked at five different football clubs and obviously other roles and he joins us now to talk about the challenges of managing a commercial program in such a competitive market as London as well as the excitement of their impending new stadium and how that will impact his commercial team going forward. Here's James. James Parkinson, welcome to Inside Sponsorship. 
Thanks, Dan. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for the invite. I know you're a keen listener of the show, so you know that the icebreaker questions are coming in there to help us warm up and for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. The first one is, if you were a professional footballer, what would be your pre-match go-to pump-up song to get you ready for the game? Okay. That's, I'd, I'd have to say that's probably my most difficult question. Uh, it's like asking what your favourite film is, but... Um, I've got two left feet, so uh, certainly a hypothetical question, but I guess it would have to be Eye of the Tiger uh, by Survivor. Um, I like my boxing, but I'm also a diehard Hull City fan, so uh, I know it's a song that they use uh, occasionally uh, at games, so I'd have to say Eye of the Tiger. Classic answer. Second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever football memory? Okay, um, I think I'll probably be going back to uh, Hull City again uh, with my dad as a, as a young nipper. Um, I was about eight or nine, I think. Uh, don't recall much other than uh, being pushed under the turnstile uh, at Bookstreet Park in the freezing cold. Um, don't remember an awful much other than we were playing Macclesfield and I think we lost... Um, but I enjoyed the game. I had a nice pie <laughs> at the match, and I learned some colourful language uh, to take back to school with me. But uh, the atmosphere of, of live football certainly got me hooked. Uh, I couldn't actually see a thing of the game because I was stood up on the terrace and I was stood behind this six-foot bloke. So uh didn't see an awful lot. But the, the game has certainly changed over the years, but the buzz of live football remains, and I think that's what keeps people coming back, isn't it? Very good. Yes, I, I would agree with that. James, let's fast forward a few years. Can you please outline your job history just briefly? Give the listeners uh, a, a little bit of background to yourself and we'd love to know how you got into your first role in the sports industry. Yeah, I, I've been asked that a few times actually. I've been, I've been very lucky to be fair. Uh, I've been in football nearly 20 years now and um, how I got into it was I finished up uh, university in Hull, graduated did business studies like a lot of people do. Um, I went straight into recruitment, and during the first month, my um, my first role was recruiting for a sales manager at Hull City uh, Football Club. They were moving into a new stadium, moving out of Boothbury Park uh, into a new venue, and read through the job specs, started looking at the um, the applicants, and I, I thought to myself, I, f- I fancy this job myself. <laughs> And given I was in the early stages of employment, you know, still in the uh, in the first month, uh, I jumped ship, started working for Hull City, and I've been in football since. And I've enjoyed lots and lots of research and con- and consultancy roles. But I've been working on a lot of new stadium projects, uh, namely Hull, uh, of course. And then I went on to Coventry City for a few years, um, you know, setting, setting up the Rico Arena. Um, then I actually moved out of football um, for a couple of years where I went to Australia, uh, to Sydney to work in media sales, which was, I thought, quite a nice change. I learned quite a bit about the media industry and certainly sales within that industry and, and came back to the UK, did a stint at MK Dons, um, a few years at West Ham with the new stadium, uh, new stadium move, which went well. And um, I've been doing bits and bobs since. You're now commercial director at Brentford Football Club, having been there for almost two years, I think it is. Tell us a little bit about the club, because not all the listeners uh, would would be across English football. Oh well, yeah, Brentford's a fantastic club. It's a club that I've, I've I've admired from afar. Obviously, you know, following Hull City, coming down to Brentford a lot, and 
you know, it's very well known for uh, uh, the pub on each corner of the stadium uh, and the very family feel of Brentford. It's certainly a very traditional club, but it, it's got some really strong values. Um, we've got six values which you know help guide us in the way we run our business. Um, those are, if I, I hope I get these right, but <laughs> those are we think long term, we're passionate about live football, we support the community, we're open and accessible. Um, we look to pioneer new methods, and but most importantly, we never forget where we come from. We're, you know, we started out as, as a small family club, and as we've grown, it's important uh, to remember that. But um, it's it's quite a dynamic club. Um, Matthew Benham, our owner, built the club uh, some time ago. He's a lifelong fan, and and since that time, the club's really uh, transformed. Um, we're going into our fifth season in the Championship. And our previous four seasons, we've finished in the top 10. So um, on the pitch, you know, the, the team are great, working really hard. Uh, we've got a, a very strong team uh, down at Jersey Road at our training ground, uh, led by our co-directors of football, uh, Phil and Rasmus, and of course, Dean Smith and his team. Um, and there's some great football being played at Brentford. A few of the pundits have, have mentioned and complimented Brentford and and also our B team have been uh, successful as well. But but off the field, it's important to get that right. And uh, we've got a great team off the field. Mark Devlin, our chief exec, has been in football a long time, worked at various clubs, and he's he's built a good team around him. And I'd like to say, as I said, family club at heart, um, a very warm, warm and welcoming club, um, but certainly one that's on a different trajectory now, looking to commercialise the new stadium and, you know, be as competitive as we can on the field. You mentioned that Mark's built a great team there at the club. How is your commercial team structured in all of that? Um, well, Finn recently, it was, it was quite small, but yet, yet very effective. Um, we've got quite a small stadium here with um, a fairly modest hospitality offering. Um, but since we've we've started to launch new initiatives... Um, since my arrival, we've obviously we've put in an LED perimeter system around the pitch and brought in a new uh, partnerships um, partnerships um, uh, offering, and we've expanded the teams accordingly. So we've got a very strong sales team led by our commercial manager Mike, and we've recently appointed uh, a chap Adam who's coming from uh, a horse racing sponsorship background, which is quite good, giving us a different uh, way of looking at things. Um, and then we've always got a lot of t- a lot of people down here at Brentford. You know, a strong team uh, working behind the uh, the commercial team through partnership activation, uh, selling hospitality events, and of course looking after uh, the fulfilment of those uh, those events as well. So, um, a, a fairly modest sized team, but efficient. And your sponsorship portfolio specifically, can you give us a bit of a rundown of who your key partners are? And I'm also interested in hearing about maybe the vision at Brentford for partnerships as well as how the portfolio, you alluded to it a second ago, has grown or changed since you joined? Yeah, I mean, our vision is obviously, uh, you know, our main aim is to grow the revenues um, to support the business that can keep the team as competitive as possible. But uh but from a vision point of view, I think it's really important to choose the right partners that are going to work well with Brentford, can align with our our values and complement our business. So that's probably the vision is obviously hitting those revenue targets, but getting the right partners in, involved. Um, 
you know, we're, we're quite selective, you know, with who we approach, obviously, and, you know, we've been quite successful in, in those approaches. So we have been quite lucky in that regard that we've got a good a good um, group of partners that work uh, work alongside our business. Um, the hierarchy as, as a partnership, we've actually got five tiers at the moment, um, and in the last two years, it's grown significantly. We've got, got around 22 key strategic partners now, ranging from the tier one partners, which are our shirt sponsors, Leah Vegas, uh, and our shirt uh, kit, kit partner, Adidas. And then we've got the platinum partners, um, University West London, Utilita, to name, name a couple there. And then it goes down to club partners, club suppliers, and digital partners. So it's quite a... Uh, Quite a broad, broad um, partnership structure of five tiers, um, but I think the success really has, uh, has obviously been down to the trajectory of the club, uh, the relationships we're building. Uh, we always look for long-term partners, which I think is important. Uh, but most importantly, just looking to return ROI for partners is key, uh, but never failing to deliver on that partner's expectation. Second competition tier clubs in England and even below often have what I think I might just call local or even hyper-local businesses as partners because it's not uncommon that we see, for example, Bob's Concrete Brentford or Jim's Cranes in Leeds sponsoring the club and even having some signage you mentioned around LED perimeter signage that ends up getting on TV and going worldwide. I'm guessing a lot of the time those are rusted on supporters of the club, lifelong fans. But I'm curious about how they differ from, say, your bigger corporates who would be more hard-nosed about their goals. Do they actually differ that much in their approach to sponsorship or are they easier or are they harder to manage? Um, I mean, it varies. I'd have to say regardless of the size of the, the company, the partner company, we, um, we find each of our relationships fairly, fairly unique but similar in, in management requirement. Um, I mean, from my experience, the smaller companies work you that much harder, but the larger companies tend to come with a bit more experience when it comes to procuring sponsorship, and uh, they think a bit more strategically about the sponsorship approach, perhaps through their activation or you know how they want to engage with fans and segment certain fan groups. But all in all... Um, uh, I think they're fairly similar in their management. That's that's certainly my my experience. Um, one thing I you know I've always always thought is the bigger ones are, are really that much harder to get across the line. You've got so much more red tape where the smaller ones tend to, smaller companies tend to make a decision that much quicker. You mentioned earlier that one of your the club's values is that you are committed to pioneering new methods. Is there anything that you offer as a club that's unique? in terms of what other clubs may offer? Or maybe if not, are there any benefits or inventory that you're really excited to offer partners? Um, it's tough. I'd have to say it's tough to be unique. Cause obviously, we're 92 other, or no, there's 91 other professional clubs uh, that were kind of in the same space um, space with. And then you've got the other rights holders uh, on top of that as well. But um, I guess I'd like to... I'd like to say we pride ourselves with the ability to be agile with our partners. You know, something I'd highlight is we um, we enjoy a number of events where we bring our partners together. Uh, lots of uh, things outside of football, um, such as business events, sporting luncheons. Um, we run a partners tournament every year, which I see is becoming quite popular now um, amongst our competitors. Um, 
And we even did a brewery tour um, with our partners uh, over at uh, our club partners, Fuller's. Um, what's be fair, I don't think many people remember much of that <laughs> night. Well, when you say you have a tournament, is that a football tournament? Yeah, it's a, a round-robin partners uh, tournament. I think we had about 16 partners join us this summer for a kickabout on the pitch. Um and we have a little trophy that we give to the winner. It's just a nice opportunity for the partners to come together. And I think it's important that it's not just about football. Uh, certainly when the football's not going not going so well, let's say, it's nice that you can rely on other events to bring the partners together. And, and, and those events weren't in, the, uh, in any rights matrix with the partners, just things we add on, things we do um, as an extra just to, you know, to add, add, additional, add additional value to the partners. We mentioned it earlier, I think you mentioned it earlier, that you've got a new stadium coming. It's very exciting that you're building a new stadium due to move in, I think it might be late 2019. Now, I had a look through the website. It's very impressive, and it seems to strike an awesome balance between the the football ambition and the fan experience, but then also integrating into the community really well. And I know, as you outlined earlier, that's also one of your values. Can you tell us a little bit about the new stadium and and how it does integrate with the community? Yeah, I think you're right. There's a good balance at the new stadium. Um, It works well underway. Um, As you said, we're moving in um, late 2019 next year. Uh, It's certainly very exciting. Uh, New stadium, there's... Looking to, we'll look at around 17,500 seats. It's going to be Premier League ready. Uh, you may have heard as well, we're hoping to secure a rugby partner, uh, which will provide a bit more excitement to the venue. Um, but most importantly, I feel it, it's very much a community stadium. We have our community sports trust at the heart of the stadium site, delivering education and activities um, to the community. Um, and we hope the, uh, the venue will be enjoyed by the wider community and the businesses in, in our community as well. Um, we're also building in plenty of premium seats for those businesses um, with, you know, variety of lounges to suit, uh, to suit varying budgets. So um, it's certainly about community engagement. It's, you know, we hope it's going to be a, a vibrant hub for the community to enjoy. James, this is a two-part question. Firstly, how important is it that a football club like Brentford actually has strong links and contributes to the community? And secondly, I know it's not your motivation, but how does that actually help or provide an advantage when you're speaking to potential sponsors? Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, any club has strong links with its community, and most do. Uh, most do, do do very well in their community. Uh, Brentford has always had a deep-rooted uh, connection uh, with Brentford and the surrounding boroughs. Um, you know, the majority of our supporters do live in West London within 10 miles of Griffin Park. And uh, the Community Sports Trust, who I mentioned earlier, have been part of the fabric of, of the community for over 30 years. Um, they work in over 100 schools, delivering over 30 sports and education programs. So I think being part of the community is, uh, you know, a very important aspect of, of, of Brentford Football Club. Um, and just moving on to sponsorship, I certainly think it helps. Uh, the, the buzzword CSR uh, gets used a lot, uh, but it is very important, corporate social responsibility. And, and, and sponsors that we engage with, especially in West London, uh, have to play their part in uh, in the local community and in, in engaging and, and, and aligning with Brentford helps them do that. So uh, uh, we're certainly um, keen to talk to companies who are, who are passionate about the local community as well as football. 
James, in previous lives, you were New Stadium Sales Director at West Ham United FC, and you're also Head of New Stadium Sales at Hull. With your new stadium not too far away, what are some of the lessons, both good or bad, that you learn at West Ham and Hull that you think stands you in good stead to make every poster winner with sponsorship and your new impending stadium? Yeah, I think that my experience certainly, you know, helps puts me in good stead as, as you mentioned. It's certainly helpful. Um, I've seen lots of good and bad in regards to stadium moves and how best to commercialise a new stadium. So I guess generally just picking up that experience on the way of uh, of how to do things um, is a winner, really. Um, I think the most important lesson that I'd say to be, uh, is to be fair and transparent as possible with the fans during the move. Um, always try and be realistic uh, with new stadium objectives. Um, I mean, they say a house move is stressful, but moving stadiums <laughs> is, is really <laughs> is just puts it on a different level. And and one thing that's been consistent in my roles um, within new stadiums, just making sure you've got the best team around you, um, because it is a stressful time. You know, it's time of with a lot of change. Um, so having a good team is very, very, very important, probably the most important. Um, and from a sponsorship and premium seating uh, um, point of view, uh, it's just about plenty of planning and research, most of all. You know, we spent a lot of time researching local businesses and, um, to, to find out a little bit about, you know, what they're up to and what they want to uh, see at the new stadium. So we hope we've got the product right. Uh, but most importantly, to follow that research, you've got to have a huge sales effort to ensure the delivery. So putting in a big, passionate sales team in place is, is key. It's obviously not a cheap um, a cheap thing to do, um, scaling up, but you've got to do it during the, the move. You know, that's your, that's your opportunity to fill that stadium, getting the right salespeople in to sell the venue for you. Not every rights holder lives in a world of possible promotion and relegation, and it is very serious business with... I think the three clubs that have just been promoted to the Premier League looking at receiving an additional revenue of about £160 million across the next three seasons, which could rise to an excess of £280 million if they survive their first season uh, in the Premier League. Let's fast forward about 10 months. Brentford have just been promoted to the Premiership. Congratulations. How (laughs) How does your approach to sponsorship change with the change in magnitude of the competition you now compete in. And I'm particularly interested in how far out you start planning for life in the Premiership, which may or may not actually eventuate. Yeah, I mean, we've already start, spent some time planning on on the prospects of, of life in the Premier League, um, just around our overall strategy, what sort of products we'll be offering, are we adapting any of those products? Most importantly, the price. Um but I think what's important is, um, is, again, going back to our values, is not forgetting where, where we've come from. And I think you really need to be careful um, when, you, when a club gets promoted. You've got to show loyalty to the brands that have supported you uh, on the way up the ladder. Um, you know, I totally agree. The Premier League, different world, especially when it comes to sponsorship values. But um, the, 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 the sponsors supporting us now uh, should be made to feel part of the family, regardless of, of what division you're in. Um, I guess it's about achieving a balance, really, because uh, you can come down as quickly as you've gone up. Um, I've spoken to a few people about this very question. In fact, um, you know, you know, 
what do you do when you get promoted? How do you treat your current sponsors? And and what's consistent is you always look after your you know your current partners. You may make some subtle adjustments to their packages, uh, but it's all about driving new revenue through new partners um, at that new level, which is important. Um, you know the likes of the shirt deal, the kit deal, uh, the larger tier two and tier three partners. That's where you'll see that um, exponential growth. Um, you know you have to you have to have a strategy in place with that in mind to to scale up quickly if you do get promoted to make sure you've got those sales teams you know ready to hit the phone to make that promotion year as successful as possible. I led with the fun and the happy example to start with, but let's look at the other end. What happens if you get relegated if you drop down to league one? How much real pressure does that actually put on your sponsorship portfolio and the commercial team? I'd have to say no comment. We're not allowed to talk about the uh, the relegation word. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a bit of a naughty word. I don't see Brentford going that way. We're you know we've got such such a strong foundation here at the club, and you know we look we're only looking forward. Um, that said, obviously we you know we've, we've built some very strong relationships with our partners. None of our partners we feel are, are a transaction. Uh, we've worked very closely with them to uh, acquire them. And we manage them um, uh, very, very closely. Um, therefore, I'd say, you know, should the worst happen, um, I'd feel like we could weather the storm uh, and continue to retain what we've got, uh, but build on our um, build on our revenues as well. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's not a word we use often, but I'd like to think we would uh, we would compete at any level. Brentford is in London. London is a big city with over 8 million people. Football is the most popular sport in England. There's six London-based clubs in the Premier League and three London-based clubs in the Championship, which Brentford competes in. How would you describe the market and and some of the positives and and some of the challenges in working in it? I think if I was to describe it in one word, I'd probably say it was you know saturated uh it's certainly very very competitive uh in london um given the location but um we're very very close to um you know local rivals such as fulham qpr and we've also got chelsea on our our, uh, our doorstep um uh, not to mention lots of other exciting right rights holders in in close proximity um I think we just have to keep that momentum and effort uh, going that we set out with. Um, my team here are very sales-driven. Um, we're constantly getting on the phones, getting in front of our, uh, brands, and that's really all, all you can do. Um, so it has its challenges, but I think if you set out your stall and um, and you keep your momentum going from a sales point of view, um, you know one can only just hope that uh, you achieve to, to the very best you can you can be. You've mentioned lots of positive things about about the team and your approach throughout all your answers. Is there anything else that you think you can add that you think is some of the reasons that Brentford thrives in such a saturated market like London? Um, I'd say from a sponsorship side, we we certainly you know we're achieving our objectives. We're growing the partnerships. You know, we're selling out the hospitality here at Griffin Park, um, and we're looking to constantly deliver. Um, deliver to our partners and over deliver as i mentioned with those events the golf days of sporting dinners and any advertising um so i I do think we we thrive at our level uh there's always room for growth um but you know it's a very very tough market at the moment and uh you know we're doing all we can to you know keep that momentum going from from the sales point point of view 
What about if you contrast that to your time at MK Don? Some people might not know. I'm guessing most of our listeners probably wouldn't know that. Milton Keynes is north of London. Google Maps tells me I can drive there in about an hour and 15 minutes or I can catch the tube and train, which will take me a bit under two hours from Brentford. Even that short distance, the population and the countryside changed dramatically. Milton Keynes' population is only about 250,000 people. What's different about working in sponsorship in London versus Milton Keynes? I mean, it's a different world down in London compared to 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 any you know city. I would say it's uh, it, you know it's uh, it's the capital and exciting place to be. Um, from a sponsorship point of view and a work point of view, um, obviously the price of beer is a lot more expensive <laughs> down here, and uh, <laughs> and traffic's uh, a lot more of a challenge. But I, I find selling is you know, selling is selling. It's the same process uh, wherever your club's based. Um, uh, and it's the nature of the club you work for that makes the role different. But I think when it comes to sponsorship sales, other than it being a little bit more cluttered um, here in London, a lot more, you know, a lot more people to, um, a lot, you know, a lot more people to contact, a lot more brands to chase. Uh, other than that, the process is generally generally similar. You said you'd spoken to some people about that specific question about planning for a potential move into the Premiership. How closely do you look at your close competitors, those Premier League clubs and those Championship clubs, to see what they are doing on the sponsorship front and that you might be able to implement or adapt yourself? I mean, we... It's a great question. I mean, we did loads of research around the new stadium. Obviously, it's an important part of our development and our future. So we did a lot of research uh, in the run-up to the stadium, uh, looking at what our competitors are doing, uh, price points, etc. Um, but we're always keeping an eye on the rights holders, um, who they're signing, what the categories they're signing, you know, how they're activating, importantly, as well. Um, it's quite easy, I'd say, to stay close to football, um, you know, as our directors um, travel up and down the country to watch Brentford, you know, we always get the uh, uh, get some information from you know what other clubs are doing, how other clubs are achieving. Um, but outside football, you know, we're just keeping up to date with the you know the news and doing our own research just just to get that inside track on things. James, right now the World Cup's on. Are there any Brentford players participating in the World Cup? Uh, yes, we have one, uh, Hendrik uh, Dalsgaard. He's uh, representing Denmark. Um, got off to a good start uh, against Peru. I think it was 1-0, and I think they've got Australia next. They do have Australia next. <laughs> All the best with that. Well, we, we hope he scores. Yeah, so we, we're, keeping, well, sorry, we're keeping a close eye on, on Henry. Um, you know, he's, a, he's a great great player of ours and a uh, good character as well, and you know we wish him all the best in the World Cup. Well, we hope he scores uh, two goals and Denmark lose 3-2. Now, it was a, a late winner against Tunisia, so don't get too carried away with England. But who's your tip to win the World Cup? Well, I've got Argentina in a sweepstake. So, um, <laughs> but um, it, it's very difficult to say. I mean, watching uh, watching the Portugal-Spain game, you know, what a game that was. Um, you know, if it's it's got to be England, of course. I would say that, uh, being a patriot. Um, but I, I fancy Portugal, to be fair. I think Portugal will do well. James, if people want to connect with you or learn more about Brentford FC, what can they do? 
Um, oh, I'm happy to connect on, on LinkedIn or drop me a line at the club. Um, always happy to chat football, sponsorship or just catch up over a cup of tea. So always, uh, always happy to chat. James Parkinson, Commercial Director, thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship at Brentford FC. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. It never ceases to amaze me how often we have a guest on the show who, on paper, in fairness, is very similar to some of our other guests. And so it's probably not unreasonable to think that their approaches and views will be fairly similar. So it always blows me away that some of those differing approaches that they share and those attitudes that come across and the way that they see the industry and even the unique challenges they face. It's great to chat with James and I trust that you learnt a lot yourselves. Good luck to James, his commercial team and the whole Brentford Football Club as they look to take that Huge step forward with a new stadium, and who knows, that may even be with promotion next year. If you want to connect with James or learn more about Brentford Football Club, simply head to sponsor.net and head to the podcast section uh, under resources where you'll find links in the show notes for everything that you need. Also, don't forget if you'd like a shout out, just get in contact and I'll make that happen. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or catch me on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Sponserve's Managing Director, Mark Thompson, you can email him on mark at sponserve.net and, of course, also find him on LinkedIn. Don't forget, you can follow Sponserve on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.